How are we doing, Revolution? Now, you guys did so well last week, but quite frankly, I mean, give me a break. That's, that's pathetic, all right? Once again, how are we doing, Revolution? There we go. That's better. All right. Well, we're talking about Romans 15, so let's jump right in. So if you uh, have a Bible, go to Romans 15. We're going to start verse 1, go to 13. Uh, verse 13, if you have one of the blue Bibles that should be around your chair there, let me see, you're going to go to page 683, all right, and we're going to do 13 verses there tonight, and then we will wrap up Romans next week with the rest of 15 and into 16, it all kinds of hang, hangs together, and then we will polish that off, and then we will move on to ask Pastor Matt, and then Pastor Dave will help lead us into a series on the prophets. So, let's just jump right into Romans. If you've got it there, take a look and let's talk about it. We who are strong. Okay, so he's talking about Christians in the church. We being people who are mature in their faith. He says, we who are strong. Now, the New Living Translation says, must be considerate of those who are sensitive about things like this. Now, who he's talking about there are, are, are Jews, right? Jew, um, Jews who have come in, have come to faith in Jesus Christ, but still have not matured past the fact that they, they get the willies about, like, eating meat because meat in the Roman world typically wasn't prepared in a kosher way. Uh, they're still, you know, observe, strictly observing the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And, and Paul is saying those of us who are mature need to be, you know, uh, just be kind to those who have not yet matured to that level. That's what we saw last week in, in, in Romans 14. But actually, be considerate is really weak. Right? It says there in verse 1, we who are strong must be considerate. But actually the Greek there, the Greek word that they're translating as be considerate is an active Greek word that means you need to go and you need to pick up and carry. And what it means in that context is kind of, it's kind of reflecting back on the cross, just as Jesus did not deserve a cross, but we do, and he picked up our cross and, and went to, to die in our place for our sins, it's we need to go and to these people and pick up their burdens and literally carry their burdens. In other words, we need to make their problems our problems. That is what Paul is urging the mature to do. And then he says, we must not just please ourselves. We are... For those of us who have been Christians for a while, those of us who have been studying God's Word, those of us who pray regularly, those of us who worship weekly, we are to go to those immature in the faith and we are actually to make their problems and burdens our problems and burdens. Right? There, there, there's a great book out right now. Even if you don't read a lot, it's not a heavy read. It's called Dallas and the Spitfire. Right? Pastor Dave and I have both read this book. Uh, it's, it's written by a guy named Ted Cluck. He's a sports writer. He's written a lot of stuff for ESPN. And he, he's in a great church in Lansing, Michigan. And he was given the assignment of discipling a former drug dealer, a guy who used to deal drugs out of the Bob Evans in Wilmington, Ohio, actually. Okay. I don't know what, to, I don't know what part you're whooping there, but all right. And so I'll take Bob Evans and Wilmington. We won't go to the other place. So anyway, um, 
And so he spends, I mean, the book is basically him pouring his life into this other person. And this person has got a lot of problems in its transition, becoming clean and sober, studying to become a minister, trying to break free of the kind of patterns of his old life, especially when it comes to girls, right? And so he's dealing with all that. And, and Ted's got, you know, he's a family guy. He's like, but he makes this guy, Dallas, his problems, his problems. This is what Paul is urging the strong to do. Go and literally make their problems problems, your problems, and pour your life into them. That's what strong Christians are called to do. Verse 2, we should help others do what is right and build them up in the Lord. Just build them up, disciple them, teach them about the ways of God, teach them wisdom, teach them how to pray. Most people do not know how to pray. They really don't. We talk about this a lot at Revolution. If you do not have a good prayer life, you are not going to grow. And if you're still saying a child's prayer, which is you just rattle off, thank you, God, forgive me for all the stuff I did. I'm not going to name it because I'm afraid I'll offend you, even though you can see everything, so that's kind of weird. And then, you know, you go and then, oh, and please pray for this person who's sick and this person who's sick. Amen. That's a child's prayer. That's how I teach my son to pray. The way we pray is we go to God and we sit there, we pour out everything in our life before Him and we spend spend considerable amount of time praying with Him. So this is building someone up, is teaching them about the faith. It's not just hanging out with them, right? It's not just going to Starbucks. I forgot we live in Portsmouth. Tim Hortons. And, 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 and just and pouring your life into them. And, and it's not just having conversation. It's deliberately and intentionally helping them to grow in the faith and to set an example for them. Verse 3, For even Christ didn't leave to please himself. As the scriptures say, the insults of those who insult you, O God, have fallen on me. He puts Jesus Christ forth as our example here. Now, this is what you need to ask yourself. In church, do you see Christians, people who call themselves Christians following Jesus' example and sacrificing all the time and constantly giving, or do you see them constantly taking? See, revolution is a little different in that we don't really care. If you come up to me and go, you know, something like, well, I didn't really get anything out of the service. I'm going to say this to you with all due respect. I don't care. Because this is not built and set up for your entertainment. This is built and set up for you to grow closer to God and serve God and bring Him honor and glory because that's what life is all about. It's not about taking. It's about learning how to give. Right? Too many churches, and we fall into this trap just like everybody else, but too many churches, as I said before, it's constant spring training. Right? We're always learning. We always got a new Bible study. We always got a new this. We always got a new program. We're not actually doing anything outside of the building, but we got new stuff. The stuff that happens in the building is supposed to be to equip you to go out in the building and win people to Jesus Christ and, and, and serve the poor and, and do what Jesus has called you to do. Right? We've got to get off out of spring training, get on the field. And Christ is our example. He did not take. He always, he lived to give to others. He was constantly giving, and he was God. Verse 4 and 5. 
Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promise to be fulfilled. Now, in Paul's day and age, the scriptures are what? Old Testament or New Testament? Old Testament, right? New Testament's not done yet. Old Testament. You're like, how does the Old Testament give me hope? How does Leviticus give me hope? Right? The simple fact is, one of the things we try to teach here at Revolution, one of the things I think Dave will do as he leads you to the prophets, the Old Testament is not about Israel. The Old Testament is not about David. The Old Testament is not about Abraham. The Old Testament is not about how do we act like Abraham? How are we to be like David? How are we to be like... It's none of that. The Old Testament points to Jesus Christ, always. It's all about Jesus Christ, and that's what gives us hope. And Dave will show you, give you a hint of, of what that's like when he goes through the prophets. Verse 5. May God who gives the patience, who gives us patience and encouragement, help you live in complete harmony with each other, as is fitting for followers of Christ Jesus. Then all of you can join together with one voice, giving praise and glory to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He returns to the unity of the church where he talked about last week. Last week he talked about how the unity of the church is about when the mature look to the weak and care for the weak and things are done in a loving manner, you can have unity. If you're always fighting, and especially fighting about crap that doesn't matter, you will never have unity. Right? Verse 7, therefore, accept each other just as Christ has accepted you so that God will be given glory. And how did Christ accept you? If you're a Christian, how did Christ accept you? Did he put all kinds of conditions on it? No, you can't earn your way into the body of Christ. It's all Christ's work. He died in your place for your sins. He lived a perfect life to give to you. So, your penalty is paid. You have no penalty. Jesus took care of that for you. He lived a perfect life. He gives that for you. You're judged by that perfect life. So you get heaven wholly by the work of Jesus Christ. You have done nothing. And you accept people the same way. Verse 8. Remember that Christ came as a servant to the Jews to show that God is true to the promises he made to their ancestors. He also came that the Gentiles might give glory to God for his mercies to them. That is what the psalmist meant when he wrote, For this I will praise your name among the Gentiles. I will sing praises to your name. And in another place it is written, Rejoice with his people, you Gentiles. And yet again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles. Praise him, all you people of the earth. And in another place, Isaiah said, The heir to David's throne will come, and he will rule over the Gentiles. They will place their hope in him. So he died for everyone, not just the spiritual people with a nice pedigree. And verse 13, I pray that God, the source of hope. Stop there just for a second. If you're a Christian and you still get angst out, if you're a Christian and you still struggle with all kinds, if you're a Christian and you struggle with depression, there may be some chemical reasons for that. There may be some things going on there that you need you know, counseling for, but quite frankly, nine times out of ten, it's because your hope is not in Jesus Christ. Your hope is in something else. And your hope in anything else will disappoint you. I don't care if it's another person, right? I feel like I need to preach that sermon again since Titanic 3D has come out, released by Satan, right? It is only hope in God because God is the only one who will not betray you and turn his back on you. you. 
So, so I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. So what he's talking about here is, is, is really loving each other. He's setting the example of Jesus Christ. He's saying that to live like Jesus Christ, to truly follow Jesus Christ, is the only way you're going to have peace. It's the only way the church is going to have unity. It's the only way the church is going to grow. It is the only way for the church to be the church, to be like Jesus Christ, to follow Jesus Christ, to love like Jesus Christ. And did Jesus Christ love selfishly? No, he loved selflessly. He gave and gave and gave, and he gave courageously and bravely, even dying for others. How do we do that? How do we do that? Let's pray, and then we'll briefly talk about it, okay? Heavenly Father, we now come and to seek to apply your scriptures to our lives. We, we ask that you'll uh, be with us now as we, as we talk about Romans 15, 1 through 13 that you inspired Paul to write. Help us to understand it. Help us to take it deep within our hearts. Help us to become more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to learn how to love, how to give, how to be mature and look after the weak. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here is, here is a problem. I'm going, to try to, I'm going to try to do it this way, all right? Um, I'm, going to, I'm going to try to put this in ways that anyone who's ever grown up in Appalachia can understand, okay? Um, there are a few things in Appalachia that are like givens, right? They're, they're like, if you want to be, if you want to like belong to your fellow Appalachians, there are a few things you have to understand are very important, Football, NASCAR, deer season, right? These are sacred rights in, in Ohio, West Virginia, and Kentucky, right? And there is something that we consider basically a sacred drink. This is all people, and of course I'm talking about Mountain Dew, right? Mount, exactly. So somebody literally, are you okay? Um, <laughs> Mountain Dew is like, you know, it, everyone drinks Mountain Dew. Now, I, I, I have to confess that I am a bit of a traitor here. I do not like Mountain Dew. I, I just don't. I, I, I tried Mountain Dew. I, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know this for sure, but I'm just guessing that it's what diabetic urine tastes like. So um, I'm just saying. So now, now let's say that you're going to go and buy some Mountain Dew. And I need some help here. I need a couple volunteers. Ben sisters, come up and help me out, please. Come on. All right, Audrey and Kat, come up here. Now, here's what we're going to do, all right? One right here, one over there. Hold the Mountain Dew. All right, there you go. Hold the Mountain Dew. Okay, now let's say that you live in the neighborhood of the drums back here, right? Okay, and like most people who live in Ohio, West Virginia, Kentucky, you love Mountain Dew, right? Cannot get enough. You walk around like a two-liter in a straw. That's what you do, right? Okay? And so you love Mountain Dew. So you go, right? You're supposed to go to this, you go to the store, right? To get Mountain Dew. And typically what you do is you go to the store where where Cat works and you buy your Mountain Dew from Cat. You have done this every day for like years, right? You go and you buy your Mountain Dew from Cat. You've gotten to know Cat. 
cat is now a part of your life, right? And, and, and you know, you buy Mountain Dew from her, and she sells Mountain Dew for $2, okay? Right? It's, it's inflation. And so you go and you buy Mountain Dew, and then, you know, let's say that, you know, we have the apocalypse, you know, all that kind of stuff. Ron Paul is right. Everything just collapses, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And we build the economy back up after things turn to, like, Mad Max, Road Warrior. And we do all that, and now, you know, Kat's back in business, and she's got, still selling her $2 Mountain Dew. But now you've got somebody down the street. You've got Audrey. She's selling Mountain Dew for $1. Where do you go? Do you buy your Mountain Dew from Cat, who you've seen every day for years, even during the apocalypse, she's there, selling Mountain Dew, right? Because we all know Mountain Dew will survive the apocalypse. And, but then, now you have $1 Mountain Dew, and you only have so much money, but you love your Mountain Dew. You can get two Mountain Dews, from Audrey, the price that cat sells one Mountain Dew. Now, what do you do? Most of you are going to go to Audrey and buy the Mountain Dew, right? Isn't this the way it works? This is the way consumerism works, does it not? Right? You'll miss cat. Cat's nice, but double the dew, right? <laughs> All right, thank you. You can take the Mountain Dew with you. Thank you very much. You've been a wonderful, wonderful volunteer. You take it with you. I don't like it. Give it to somebody else. That's all right. We're in Portsmouth. You'll be lucky to get five feet with that thing. All right, now. Now, this is the way we do, this is the way we consume, right? This is what we do. If somebody can provide a service for a better price or let whatever, we will go there. That is what we will do, right? Is there any other reason to go to Walmart? Is there any other reason Big Lots exists, for goodness sakes, right? I mean, big Lots, if you've never been inside, makes Walmart look like Macy's, right? So you go to where you can get what you want, what you need for least amount of hassle, least amount of cost. Now, that's how consumerism works. Now, the problem with this is... This is also how we treat relationships, right? So you have somebody, and this person, a friend, girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, wife, whatever, this person gives you what you want and what you need. There's a certain price involved. There always is time, effort, whatever. And then someone else comes along offering the same thing for less hassle, less cost, and you go over there, right? Um, I had a situation here in the last couple years where a person who had been married for, I don't know, I think 10 years or more had decided to leave her husband. And when I inquired what was going on, you know, the response was, we're just not in love anymore. And so I'm like, well, define what this means. You're not in love anymore. What, what, what happened? What, did, did, did he cheat on you? No. Been a faithful husband. Good provider? Yeah. So he's not a lazy bum? No. 
Does he abuse you in any way, emotionally? No, 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 no. He's a very nice guy. You've got a kid. Is he a bad father? No, he's a wonderful father. Well, what's, what's going on here? And what was going on was she had found someone else that was younger, hotter, seemed to require less attention, and she just moved on over there. Ironically, she didn't stop going to church. What's she doing? You know what she's doing? Mountain Dew's cheaper over here. Right? See, when we start treating people like this, things fall apart. And of course, eventually, people, someone will treat you like that. And then we scream foul. But we do this. We treat people the same way we treat stores. If they give us what we want, we'll keep doing business with them. But when they start to upset us, when they start to, we'll move to someone else. And then we use bumper sticker phrases that mean nothing like, well, we're not in love anymore. But that's not what love is. See, I've said this many times before. I, I stole this from a counselor at Fuller Theological Seminary who said the problem that we have here is that we often define love as being loved instead of loving. It's about what we get, not about what we give. Right? And that's the problem. See, if you love like Jesus Christ, you can't do this. If you love like Jesus Christ, you cannot pick and choose who you're going to love based upon what they can do for you. And then move on when they don't do it any longer. That's not how that works. Nowhere in Scripture does Jesus Christ basically stop and say, Ah! You at 12 are ridiculously stupid. I'm tired of it. I'm hitting alt control delete. I'm getting 12 new. You're fired. Now, he does express frustration with them. But he doesn't leave them. Because he doesn't define love as getting anything. See, if you're under this impression, you need to divest yourself of it. When you come to church and you listen to me talk for 30, 40 minutes and you worship with the band, and you leave, you have done God nothing. You have done nothing for God. God is not up there going, oh, I hope he comes to church this week. Does he like me? <laughs> oh, he showed up. <laughs> God is not doing that. Bible, the Bible is very clear. God needs nothing from any of us. He had perfect love within the Trinity. The Father, Son, and Spirit loved each other perfectly. He did not need Father, the Son, the Spirit. They did not need anything from us. In fact, all we usually do is cause them headaches and trouble. And when we worship, we're not giving them something they need. We're just doing something we're supposed to do. It's just the honor and glory that is His due. But he's not up there. He's not a codependent God just waiting for it and hoping for it. 
If it doesn't happen, he still has perfect love. He still has perfect relationship. He still has a perfect kingdom. He doesn't need us. And yet, he loves us anyway. Despite the fact that not one of us can give him anything, he loves us anyway. Despite the fact that none of us add anything to his existence at all, he loves us anyway. And that is what love is. When you give to someone who can give nothing to you, that's the purest love there is. That's how God loves. And he doesn't just love that way. He doesn't just love purely. He loves courageously. See, here's my big idea. If you love in a consumer fashion, if you love the same way, if you love, choose who you love based the same way you buy Mountain Dew and where you buy Mountain Dew, you're not only, do you, do you not know what love is, not only are you just feeding yourself, quite frankly, you're a coward. Because it takes real guts to love when you get nothing in return. It takes a lot of guts. It takes a lot of perseverance, Right? takes a lot. Now, see, our, I, here's my opinion. My opinion is our biggest problem, you know, in, in, our, in like the Western culture, I'm not picking on America, I mean like Canada, Australia, anywhere in the West, this is our problem. We don't say this, but we actually think cowardice is a really good idea. Because cowardice keeps us from getting hurt. Right? I've heard this I don't know how many times. Because we have such a young church, any time like, you know, six, semi-16 to 24 comes to see me, and they don't have a boyfriend and girlfriend, and they, don't, they tell me they don't want one, and the reason they don't want one is, you know, they had a relationship, and they don't want, they're afraid of getting, you can finish it, hurt. Now, I'm not saying you need to rush out and get a boyfriend and a girlfriend to overcome this fear, but here's, if that's the reason you're not in relationships with people, you're a coward. You're a coward. Of course you're going to get hurt. Of course you're going to get hurt. You can't live life without getting hurt. Give me a break. So what? You can be a coward and live an empty life, or you can be brave and risk everything and live a life worth living. And it's not that you won't feel fear. You will. You're a human being. I will argue, despite the fact that bloggers would attack me for it, that Jesus Christ, in Gethsemane, felt fear. Now, I don't think he feared necessarily just a cross, right? I think what he feared was the sensation he'd never had before, which was to be ripped from the presence of the Father and the Spirit as he took our sins upon him. I think that's what he really feared. To take the punishment for all our sins upon himself. I think that that's why he was in the Garden of Gethsemane literally sweating blood going, is there any other way to do this? But not my will, but yours be done. Customato, 
was a boxing trainer. I love boxing. I don't know if that's Christian or not to, watch, to like sit there and, and watch two people beat the crap out of each other, but I love it. I really love it. And Customato was one of the greatest boxing trainers of all time. Right? And Customato used to tell his fighters the difference between the coward and the hero is not what they feel, but what they do. If you begin to see love as giving yourself to other people and you see that you will get hurt, you will feel fear. That fear will never go away. I am afraid when people come to me and we speak and they're having issues, they're having problems, and they go, I'm always afraid what's going to happen to them. I'm always afraid they're going to disappoint me. We've had that a lot. Since Ryan and Justin and I, you know, you know, helped launch Revolution in 2008, we have seen a lot of people come and go. A lot of people come in, and they got all kinds of problems, and they're there, and they and they cry, and they say, and they beg forgiveness for God, and they worship, and then four weeks later they're gone, and they're doing exactly what they were doing again. And you cannot be a human being if there's something within you just like ah. Oh. And that's why you have a lot of cynical pastors, right? It's not that they're bad people. It's just they've been burned again and again and again and again and again because this job will break your heart. But here's the deal. The only life worth living will break your heart. And you just have to push through it. And we have chosen, we feel that God has called us here at Revolution to go into the East End and love people in the midst of a dark, deep, deep addiction to substances. To people who are literally selling themselves for drugs. And we have committed ourselves to loving those people. As I've told the guys in the East End, this ain't baseball. In baseball, you become a hero for failing seven out of ten times. Right? Exactly. In the East End, your, your batting average is going to be way lower than that. But the question is, is the one person out of a hundred worth it? See, I think they are. But you can't love those people without risking everything. You can't love those people by, 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 by kicking them to the side the moment they start to cost you something, the moment it gets to the point where it's just like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore, it's a pain. You can't do that. You've got to push through that. Uh, this past week, I spent all week in um, Grand Rapids in Chicago. Um, and... In Chicago, we had a fundraising dinner for the ministry I work for. That's my day job in, on, on Thursday night. And one of my friends, Jordan Lawrence, was the, was the speaker. And Jordan is one of those guys who's argued in front of the Supreme Court like a dozen times, all that kind of stuff. And he's like, you know, uber lawyer. 
And, and he got up and he was talking about bravery and courage and, and, and what it takes to accomplish something that matters. And he pointed this out in, in a way that I'd never really thought about. He's talking about you know, the Revolutionary War, and I'm reading a book on the Revolutionary War now, and, and, and George Washington and Franklin and all the guys who put their necks on the line for the Revolutionary War. And then he started talking about all the guys who charged Normandy Beach, you know, in, in World War II. And he said, here's the deal. We look back on those guys and see the amazing things they did, and, and we kind of marvel at that and all this other kind of stuff. But at the time they were rushing the beach, they had no idea if they were going to win or lose. None. When they were rushing the beach, it could well have been that they were part of the biggest massive failure and defeat in, in world history. They had no way of knowing. They pushed on. In the Revolutionary War, George Washington often was depressed because he had to constantly retreat and retreat and retreat and retreat and retreat. And finally, he'd score a victory, but then he'd have to get He was defeated and defeated and defeated and went on and on and on and on. And it would have been so easy to just say, this is not worth it. At the time, he had no idea if it was going to work or not. But the simple fact is, if you want to accomplish great things, you have to adhere to higher principles, and you have to push on regardless of how bleak it looks. And so if you're going to follow the command, if you're going to learn what it is to love another person, if you're going to follow the command and follow the, the example of Jesus Christ and love the least among us. Go to Matthew 25 and see what he, how important he says that is. If you're going to do that, it's going to cost you. And it's going to look dark. And you're going to suffer a lot. And when Jesus returns, you will learn it was worth it. It was worth every heartbreaking second. It was worth every tear. It was worth every wasted dollar. It was worth all of those times of listening to people sob. It was worth all of it. See, I live under this belief. This is how it ends. I believe, despite the fact that we seem to live in such a dull, you know, kind of day, mundane existence, that one day everything will change. And that Jesus will return, and he will reign here on earth forever. And we will actually have access to Jesus Christ in the flesh, be able to speak to him. We... we, we the Bible talks about coming to this huge banquet when he returns, that, that the people who have been faithful to him, he will throw this huge party. And there'll be this, this incredible banquet where we all sit together with our king. And here's my dream. Here's what I want. Here's what I pray about. Here's what I pray, that despite all my selfishness and all the blackness inside me, that God somehow it, it, it works through me to do this. I want Jesus Christ to look at me and, and just, Matt, why, why would you and all those guys 
at 315 Chillicothe Street, why would you take your time? Why would you take your Friday nights and your Saturdays and go into the East End and hang out with, with, with crack prostitutes and, and, and drug addicts? And, and, and why would you do all of those things? And why would you continue to do them year after year after year after year when so many of them lied to you and took advantage of you and laughed about it? And, and why would you do that? And I want to be able to just look at him and say, for you, Because you did everything for me. I did what I could for you. Not because you needed it, but just to say thank you. Just to say I love you. See, I think that despite everything we see around us, that's all that matters. Nothing else matters. You knew I'd have to end with a Metallica quote, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that despite the fact that you don't need anything from us, that our, our worship does not give you anything you need. You may want it, you may desire it, but you don't need it that we are much more of a pain than anything else, that we break your heart more than we ever do anything to serve your kingdom, that you have stated you will never forsake us. You will never turn your back on us. You will never leave us. You will never disown us. You are with us always that you did it all, that you lived a perfect life just for us, that you died a horrendous death just for us. It's all for us. That's how you accepted us, despite the fact that we kept spitting in your face. You kept pulling us towards you. May we accept others. May we go. May we grow in you and go to those who are weak. Pick up their burdens. Make them ours even if it means it breaks our heart, even if it means it costs us time and money and, 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 and headaches and lost sleep, and, and, and may we do it all. No matter what we miss, no matter what, it doesn't matter. No matter what it costs us, if it's for your honor and your glory, may we do it happily, joyfully, because paradoxically you've said that if we do that, if we live that life following you as much persecution that comes, as much heartbreak that comes, well, you will send us peace. We will know peace beyond anything else. May we do so. May we serve you with everything we have. And may we now worship you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.